a suspicious fire and a narrow escape. It wasn't an accident. It was targeted. A Ukrainian family forced to flee their Victoria home. How all signs point to arson. Price pressures intensify. This is what you would call in economics the perfect storm. The driving factors and what's costing you more as inflation exceeds expectations. Three shots scores. And more than just a game. No words to describe how I feel. It's just beautiful. A Canucks fan finally gets to see her team thanks to some help from her hockey hero. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A family of five woke up in the middle of the night to someone pouring gas through their mail slot and igniting it. Luckily, they all escaped. They live in the house next door to a Ukrainian Catholic church where the father serves as the priest. As Kylie Stanton reports, the investigation is underway, but the motive remains unclear. It was hell. There's really no other way to describe that moment. I knew that was the only window out. This is where Yuri Vizhnevsky's three daughters, aged 5, 7 and 11, and his wife were left gasping for air as their home went up in flames in the early hours of Wednesday morning. Vizhnevsky, who had made it out, was ready and waiting to catch them. When you tell them, jump, and you're kind of like, okay, it's... It's better work. Remarkably, today, he's breathing a sigh of relief. But there are questions. What exactly happened? And, and also why? Vizhnevsky is the Ukrainian priest here at St. Nicholas Catholic Parish. His family was sleeping in their home next door to the church when his wife got up thinking one of the children was awake, but quickly realized someone was outside and called for her husband. And someone was pouring the gasoline right through the mail slot inside the house. Moments later, fire broke out, engulfing the home. The children jumped to safety just before firefighters arrived on scene. And there was a woman that was sort of clinging onto the window frame. Uh, we had to deploy ladders very quickly uh, in order to execute that rescue. The family was taken to hospital. The eldest daughter, who fell into shattered glass on her way down, had to undergo surgery to repair a massive cut to her arm all while fire investigators work to determine the cause. We've concluded that the fire was intentionally set fire by persons unknown at this time, so that file has been turned over to Victoria Police Department for their uh, investigation. The structure's proximity to uh, a Ukrainian Catholic church, very close, there's a connection there between the family and the church, obviously something that we will be looking at and considering as the investigation moves forward. This was a shock. Vizhnevsky says his family has never been the target of threats, not before the war in Ukraine and not after it started. But he'd rather not think about the possibility. I don't want to get stuck there. Instead, choosing to focus on healing as a family, knowing just how lucky they are to have made it out alive. We are grateful. Thank God we are safe. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. The annual 420 celebration at Sunset Beach that draws thousands of people went up in smoke again this year due to pandemic uncertainty. But cannabis enthusiasts didn't want the day to go unrecognized. So some new organizers arranged a smaller celebration at the site of the original protest in Vancouver, and that's outside the Art Gallery, which is where we find our Ahmad Igahi tonight. Ahmad? Yeah, Chris, smaller scale for sure, but there are, as you can see, still a lot of people hanging around and pushing this event 
well past that 4.20 in the afternoon. Of course, it's been a couple of years since we've seen 4.20 take place like this in Vancouver. It's similar to those events in the past, but in some ways it has changed as well. The two-year hiatus is over. And just in case it's not clear through the smoke, Vancouver's 420 festival goers seem keen to make up for lost time. I feel so happy here. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's Meeting amazing. a lot of nice people, everyone's very nice, polite. <laughs> Between lighting up at just about every opportunity, Ooh, that's fire. there was time to stop and ponder the question. More than three years after legalization of marijuana in Canada, what is 420 really about anymore? The main focus is protest. The secondary focus is celebration. And not just smoke a blunt and not just roll it up. Certainly the world is different in Canada post-legalization, but there are still a lot of stigmatization, a lot of criminalization, a lot of penalization of cannabis users and cannabis growers. From further back, it perhaps looks more like a trade show than anything else. Think of it as a farmer's market, connecting like-minded cannabis users. It's like Disneyland to me, so it's really fun. It's so peaceful and feels so full of love and light, so it's awesome. It's honestly now just destigmatizing everything because nobody's acting out here, right? Like if this was like a alcohol event or something, You'll see so many more people acting out. Dude, this is not black. There is also the early indication that 420 may not just be about cannabis anymore. I think mushrooms should absolutely be legalized and uh, people need to be educated on how to use them safely. Just like there was hundreds and hundreds of shops selling marijuana all across the country before legalization happened, and I think that was actually a necessary prerequisite for legalization, we're going to see the same thing happening with mushroom and psychedelic dispensaries. <laughs> And just a quick note about that man you saw in the story being removed. It doesn't appear that he had any affiliation with the event today. It seems he was intoxicated. And as far as we know, the only person police have had to arrest. Officers actually here watching from afar. They've stayed on the perimeter to make sure people going in and out of the event don't uh, stumble into traffic. And the organizers are promising that they will leave this place as clean as they found it whenever this event finally does wrap up this evening. Well, so far, so good, at least, Ahmad. Thanks very much. That's Ahmad Agahi down at the Art Gallery. And if you are curious about how much we spend on cannabis and where we're spending it, Canadians tend to make larger pot purchases online versus in-person. Monera's data shows between March of last year and this year, in-person cannabis transactions increased by 33%, but the average spend was down 7% to $49. Online transactions increased by 17%, with the average purchase just under $100. That's up 15% from last year. Well, the news today of Canada's skyrocketing inflation rate is even worse than experts expected. The consumer price index has risen more than economists were predicting, driven by gas and food prices. Aaron MacArthur has more. From the fill-up to the meal-out, inflation continues to hit Canadians hard. February saw near-record levels of price increases, eclipsed now by the numbers in March. Economists predicted inflationary pressure, but not this severe. What's the price? 
Um, I'm, I'm going to say a jaw drop to the floor. The consumer price index rose by 6.7% year over year. Canadians paying nearly 40% more for gasoline compared to last March. Even taking gas out of the equation, the price increase still more than 5.5%. It's the largest annual increase in the cost of living since the creation of the GST. Prices are going up because people are catching up on pent-up demand from the pandemic years. And um, at the same time, the supply chain is in trouble. So, you know, that's a double whammy. The war in Europe has pushed the price of fuel and fertilizer up. The cost of shipping has been high for more than a year now. And that's having an effect across the economy. Where you're going to notice it the most, though, is in the grocery aisle. Overall, the trip to the store is going to cost about 9% more than last year. Milk is up 7.7%. Eggs up 85 the largest price hike since 1983. Cheese is up 10.4%. Cereal up nearly 12.5%. The largest increase there since 1990. Butter, 16% more expensive. And pasta up a whopping 17.8%. Food economists say this is only the beginning. This cycle of inflation may last more than a year. This is going to be a bit of a, of a marathon, unfortunately. So, uh, so consumers will have to really adapt uh, new habits that will actually make them save money for the longer term. BC is seeing lower rates of inflation than the rest of the country, but only slightly. Housing price pressure and record gasoline prices negating any advantages this province may have had. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. The province is stepping back from its vaccine mandate for extended health care workers, people like dentists, physiotherapists, chiropractors and massage therapists. Health officials initially announced all workers would have to be fully vaccinated in order to practice. But as Richard Zussman reports, the order has not even been posted and already it's changed again. It has been dragging on for months. And now BC's decision to require around 35,000 health care workers to declare a COVID-19 vaccination status is injecting confusion. What they have to tell their patients, we don't know yet. And I think that there's a lot of concern about personal privacy. Physiotherapists, dental hygienists, chiropractors, and all other extended healthcare workers overseen by colleges were required by the end of March to provide their vaccination status. But that information has not yet been passed on to the public. We'll be publishing that soon. Uh, We'll be publishing the overall numbers soon. What is also unclear is how the public will be notified. Health Minister Adrian Dick says it will be done two ways. Publicly, the colleges will release a percentage of members who have shown vaccine proof, but patients will not get the information publicly on whether their provider is vaccinated. Two ways of dealing with informed consent, basically. The first would be to publish lists, and I think most of us would find that um, not the best approach. And the others would be to insist that individual practitioners provide that information. This leaves the burden on the individual to ask each of their providers if they are vaccinated against COVID-19. What's unclear is what will happen if one of those providers does not tell the truth or refuses to reveal their vaccination status. The other concern is around safety. We know that some offices have had patients lose it when they found out that someone wasn't vaccinated or or whatever. And so how is that going to be managed? 
The BC Greens say these problems are symbolic of recent pandemic management. This issue of vaccinated or unvaccinated healthcare providers is, uh, you know, another question of, of policy decision making without really being clear on what outcomes this government is trying to achieve with it. The mandatory reporting does not include doctors at hospitals and most nurses because they are still required to be vaccinated in order to work. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. And Keith Baldry joins us now with more. Keith, last month we received our first doses of Novavax. Novavax mm-hmm. is a more traditional vaccine. So it was thought maybe there would be some more interest from healthcare workers who were hesitant up till that point. What's the uptake being for Novavax? Yeah, so the numbers of people requesting Novavax continue to climb daily and weekly. And the assumption is there are a number of healthcare workers, about 2,000 healthcare workers, who have been laid off or put on leaves of absences because they refuse to get vaccinated. Also, roughly 300 or so government employees also facing a vaccine mandate. And now we're, the thinking is a number of those people are starting to take the Novavax. Uh, so here's how it breaks down by health authority. Uh, Fraser Health, which has the most, uh, in terms of population, no surprise, has the most requests for Novavax. It's traditional type of uh, vaccine. Uh, Fraser, a little more than 1,100. Vancouver Coastal, a little more than 700. Vancouver Island and the interior, almost the same take-up numbers, a little more than 500. Very low take-up in the north. 16 are not categorized in one particular health authority or not. So bottom line, almost 3,000 requests now for this vaccine. And the assumption is a number of those people may indeed be healthcare workers who've been uh, not able to be on the job because they are required uh, to be vaccinated as part of terms of the their employment. And this we'll be tracking this in the weeks ahead. And it'll be interesting to see if we get an update of how many people in healthcare are now back on the job mm-hmm. after being vaccinated with this particular vaccine. Yeah, perhaps we'll find out tomorrow in the COVID-19 weekly update. Mm. Uh, any indication of what we can expect tomorrow? Yeah, so the trend lines are going to continue. Uh, we put the question to Health Minister Adrian Dix today. Keep an eye on ICU numbers, which are flatlining, but hospitalizations continue to increase. Here's the minister. Overall, non-critical um, care hospitalization has been going up and critical care hospitalization has been stabilizing. In other words, the number of people who are sick enough to be in hospital but not in critical care is the group that we saw an increase. And I think you're going to continue to see uh, those two trends tomorrow. So, yes, the infection rate continues to rise. We're going to see that tomorrow. And we're starting to catch Ontario in terms of per capita hospitalizations. But the good news is our ICU numbers are not increasing. We should be reflected in the numbers tomorrow. One o'clock is the release time. All right. We will talk to you tomorrow then. Thanks, Keith. E-bike popularity has soared during the pandemic. And now a warning about some of them from local fire officials, how they're a hot item in more ways than one. Next on the News Hour. Home sweet home in Merritt. What residents are finding as they finally return months after the floods. And coming up in sports, Wimbledon takes a stand on the war in Ukraine. The top players not invited. Right now, though, e-bikes have taken off in Metro Vancouver. Too tired to pump it up that hill? No problem. But the same thing that helps you power through might be a hidden hazard. As Kamal Kuramali reports, fires associated with e-bike batteries are becoming an issue. Sales of electric bikes in Metro Vancouver have been kicked into high gear. Stores are churning them out like never before. They look like normal bicycles, but a closer look shows a motor. So this would go right in there. Between the pedals and a rechargeable battery. 
But what makes this product unique can also spark danger. We see some really shoddy electronics. They can cause some real trouble. It's getting burned. They got to start going down ASAP. E-bike fires have become a problem in the United States, especially in New York, where 2021 saw dozens of incidents and at least three deaths. Now making its way here, fire crews responding Saturday to an e-bike battery explosion in the basement of a North Vancouver home. Luckily, no one was hurt. This is the first that we know of uh, in North Vancouver. And a fear it won't be the last. E-bike store owners say those fires likely caused by low-quality lithium batteries that haven't been certified and a mishmash of parts. What I'm very concerned about is when a bike comes into this shop for repairs and we can't identify whose wires they are, whose battery it is, whose motor it is, or any of that stuff. And... There's some component on the bike that's running hot. Now, some e-bike store owners pushing for more provincial oversight of the electronic products that get installed into the bicycles. With some bikes, we've just refused service. Like, that's not staying overnight. Um, I'm sorry, that has to stay at your home. And a warning to consumers, do your research. A cheap e-bike could cost you more than you think. Kamal Karamali, Global News. See if we can find her a little bit later. <laughs> a little, little unsettling. Mm. Hey, it's a whole new news production system we're working with tonight, so bear with us. It is. All right. In the meantime, the travel nightmare isn't quite over for Sunwing passengers. While some people have been able to make it to their destinations, others are still stuck at hotels and airport terminals with no certainty about when or if they will be able to fly. Tonight, an apology from the airline. It blames a server issue involving a third-party provider. Global Shalima Maharaj has the latest. It, it would have been far better off if they just said, look, your, your vacation's canceled, rebook. We've now, this is our fourth time being told, oh, come this time, come that time, come that time. Yeah. Like, just be straight. That's all we ask. A back and forth travelers weren't banking on having to contend with. We're here at like 12 or whatever to be here for four, and we just checked the flight schedule, and now it's switched to 8.15 tomorrow morning. So like in a 24-hour period, that's like four or five delays. On Wednesday, Sunwing attributed the ongoing delays to a server issue involving its third-party systems provider, Airline Choice, saying in an email, while Airline Choice works to restore core server functionality, Sunwing continues to manually process as many flights as possible. We are also actively working with other carriers to source additional aircraft to help relieve the backlog. They should have had things in place to prevent this. And I know these things do happen, but this kind of delay, I mean, call in the experts. This cybersecurity expert says there's a serious reputational risk for the airline. One of the uh, questions that something we will have to answer is um, whether uh, this is a risk that could have been avoided. Uh, and it'll also be a question of whether this was a target of opportunity ransomware or otherwise that uh, uh, that bad actors simply exploited or whether it was whether Sunwing was targeted intentionally. And when it comes to getting back online. The challenge once you have a compromise is you actually need to know that you're not going to put people's information or your own network at further risk by bringing your network back up. Shalima Maharaj, Global News.
Now, a Consumer Matters follow-up. Back in December, you might recall, we told you about a Prince George woman who bought tickets for a Vancouver Canucks game along with the extra insurance, only to miss the game. Last year's historic flooding made it impossible for her and her family to get there, and she wasn't getting much satisfaction from the ticket seller. Let's bring in Andrea with an update on how her experience eventually turned into a positive one, Anne. That's right, Sophie. Right after we shared Irene Warren's story, many sympathized with her situation, including a former Vancouver Canuck. Now this hockey fan is about to have her dreams come true. It's a day Irene Warren has been anticipating for months, overwhelmed with emotion as she prepares to cheer on her favorite team. It means the world to me for being here, to be in such wonderful people, wonderful organization. It's, It's a lot. It means a lot. A lot because getting here wasn't easy. Last November, the Prince George resident and her family couldn't make the Canucks game due to the historic flooding in southern B.C. She was forced to turn around and never made it to Vancouver. Irene had purchased four tickets through TicketNetwork.com, an online marketplace, and even bought the event ticket protector insurance. On the belief that if anything should happen, that I would get my refund back. Despite Irene's unprecedented circumstances, TicketNetwork.com told her all sales were final and her claim with the insurer, Alliance Global Assistance, was denied. It was a blow, especially because the game meant so much more to Irene. She's an Indian day school survivor and last June, Irene received compensation from the day school settlement. This was her chance to celebrate with her family. One of the reasons I wanted to celebrate from the bad... To the good. I'm Peter and this is Gino. Oh! When former Canuck Gino Ojik and his longtime friend Peter Leach heard about Irene's story, they wanted to help and contacted the Canucks Alumni Association. We've seen the story on uh, Global and uh, it really touched us. How are you? Hey, Babbage. We're brought up to respect our elders. Hi, Irene. And uh, for them to drive all the way from Prince George come here and then find out they can't make the you know participate in the game was just uh we thought wow that uh that wasn't right miller reshot scores but gino peter and the canucks alumni have made it right turning a negative experience into a positive one it's part of my healing journey and i'm so happy a special evening to share with Irene and her family in the alumni suite high above the ice with memories to last a lifetime. Awesome. Beautiful. Such an exciting night. It was pretty exciting. Irene says she's grateful for her experience and says she's taking everyone's support and kindness and using that positive energy to move forward. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can reach me. There's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Biggest Canucks fan, Irene, living out her dream. Thank you, Anne. For sure. Coming up, Iranian Canadians stopped at the border. I'm still shocked. I can't even think about future. What's going to happen? How their past mandatory military service has made them inadmissible. We hope for beautiful future together. A Ukrainian family finds a new home in Canada after facing a lot of bureaucratic roadblocks along the way.
Three years ago, the administration of former U.S. President Donald Trump declared Iran's Islamic, uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps a foreign terrorist organization, effectively banning anyone with past or present ties to the IRGC from stepping foot on American soil. That's left scores of Iranian Canadians blacklisted from the U.S. Even those who were forced to serve and conscripted into minor roles. Elizabeth McSheffrey reports. All I had was uh, a FaceTime, a cell phone to see my father. Ali Mavasa wasn't allowed to be by his father's side as he took his final breaths in a California hospital this January. I could not, uh, could not give him a hug. Uh, that's something that I, yeah, that I never, never forget. He was deemed inadmissible to the United States last year, confusing at first to the Vancouver businessman, a Canadian citizen since 2010. I'm still shocked. I can't even think about future. What's going to happen? Then Movasa realized he wasn't alone. Many other Iranian-Canadian men have been blacklisted from the U.S. too, many years after leaving their lives in Iran behind them. Apart from their country of birth, they have one thing in common. As young men, they were forced to serve in Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. Absolutely mandatory service. Security experts say there is no doubt the IRGC is seen internationally as a threat. The fearsome branch of Iran's military, known for domestic and foreign oppression, controls Iran's nuclear and missile programs. A section of the Corps, the Quds Force, is also considered a terrorist entity in Canada. In 2020, the IRGC shot down Ukraine International Airlines Flight PS752, killing all 176 passengers on board, including 55 Canadian citizens and 30 permanent residents. They've also been involved in a number of activities that, even though we wouldn't necessarily refer to them as terrorism, have been destabilizing, violent, oppressive. But Iranian Canadians banned from the U.S. insist there's a major difference between those who enlist and build their careers within the IRGC and those conscripted into service. Conscripts have been known to be involved in a number of menial duties, cooks, clerks, uh, guard duty. Men in Iran face harsh penalties for refusal to complete conscription, including ineligibility to obtain a passport and imprisonment. I did not have a choice. If I had a choice, believe me, I would have cho chose to go to another military branch. Toronto urologist Dr. Ardalan Ahmed was deemed inadmissible to the U.S. in 2020. A dream teaching job in Florida dashed because of his mandatory IRGC service more than 15 years ago. All I did two weeks a month, I was seeing patients, other constructs in IRGC. I was not even allowed to interact with the official personnel of IRGC. Between 1995 and 97, Movasa says his service consisted of keeping an inventory of construction and transport trucks. It doesn't mean that everybody's in IRGC's registered as considered as terrorist member. The symbolic value of the U.S. terrorist listing not in question, but this former Department of National Defense analyst criticizes its scope and effectiveness. To use tools that are so sweeping and that have such a massive impact on a lot of innocence is really not the way to go. Global News spoke with 20 former IRGC conscripts who have been blacklisted from the U.S. 
men who left the moment their minimum time had elapsed and became Canadian citizens, raising their families in this country. Now some of their wives and children have also been banned from crossing the border. My son, my daughter, what's going to happen to them in 10, 15, 20 years? In recent weeks, delisting the IRGC as a terrorist organization been raised as U.S. President Joe Biden tries to revive a multilateral nuclear deal with Iran. Such a concession is far from certain, but for now remains the only hope for former conscripts in Canada who want to clear their names in the United States. Elizabeth McSheffrey, Global News. A B.C. First Nation near Harrison Hot Springs is unveiling plans to construct its very own health care center. It'll be Indigenous-led, ensuring access to culturally safe care. It'll also be built off-reserve to benefit other surrounding communities. And as Nitu Garcha reports, it's not the only thing making history. This is a historic moment, say members of the Staelis Nation. A ceremony to swear in the first ever elected youth council. You can really say that we're reversing assimilation by doing this. We're taking back our culture and we're teaching our younger people to be in these positions. My duties. Ten members ages 14 to 21 with a seat at the table for work they call precedent setting, including having a say on the development of a Staelis-led primary health care centre, the only one north of the Fraser River with a goal of recruiting more Indigenous health care providers. Culturally appropriate holistic health care services, looking at developing a residential treatment program that has low barrier entry, early entry, and aftercare. This is the design inspiration for the facility slated for construction in Harrison Mills near Highway 7. Chief Ralph Leon says they chose to build it off-reserve so it benefits other communities. We were thinking of everybody when we decided to, to build a primary health care centre. What we're going to see is non-First Nations people going to First Nations-run clinics and community. It changes the power structure and approach so that it's not one group of people always as patients and the other people always in charge. It changes that dynamic. I think it's very exciting. The province providing $2.5 million for the purchase of land for the health care facility. For people in the area in general, it's going to make a big difference to health care there and I'm, uh, I'm really proud of them. It's all part of a historic reconciliation agreement just signed with the B.C. government that includes returning more than 150 hectares of crown land along the Chehalis River to the Staelis people. This reconciliation agreement with British Columbia is going to really solidify a lot of things for us including our, our presence on our own traditional lands. We're kind of paving the way for other First Nations communities. And for future generations. Nitu Garcha, Global News, Staelis. Yeah, just ahead, the long road home for Merritt residents. It's been hard. It's been really hard. How there's still so much to do before life returns to normal there. And in sports, the Canucks cling to hope after last night's stumble. Five months after last fall's historic flooding, more residents in Merritt are finally returning as the evacuation order is lifted for another 204 homes in the flood-ravaged community. The entire city of 7,000 was evacuated in November after the Coldwater River burst its banks, flooding homes and destroying city infrastructure. 
Properties taken off the order are now accessible by emergency services and are hooked up to utilities. But some residents still face a lot of work to rebuild. It's difficult, really, for seniors, and it's mostly seniors in this little area here. And it's been hard. It's been really hard because you don't know if you're coming or going. There's the bridge repairs, the parks to be repaired, some of the water treatment facility area needs to be repaired, uh, roadways, sidewalks. 66 properties in Merritt are still on an evacuation order. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon with a look at our weather forecast. And if I remember correctly, I feel like it might have been a nice day today, Christy. Will there be more ahead of us? <laughs> Uh, down the road, yes, but not over the next 24 hours, Sophie. We've started to see the rain pick, uh, push in. It, it, the winds are picking up. It is going to be stormy over the next 24 hours. Here's a look. We've got two low-pressure centers that we're going to be contending with. One pushing in right now. That's going to bring wind and rain to our region this evening. And then another one that's going to shift in tomorrow morning, and that's going to impact the interior regions as well, with not just wind and rain, but the risk of thunderstorms. So uh, downpours of hail is certainly possible and then you need to be watching out for lightning. Quick little lightning safety tip. Uh, the sound of, or sorry, the um, speed of sound is actually roughly five seconds for one mile or 1.6 kilometers. And you remember that old saying where you used to count the seconds between the time you saw the lightning and heard the thunder to determine if you were safe or not? Well, we know now that that actually doesn't apply. Why? Because lightning can actually travel as far as 16 kilometers. So at any point that you can actually hear thunder, you have the potential of being struck by lightning. So the old saying is now down the new saying is when thunder roars, head indoors, because at any point that you could hear thunder, it's really important you head inside. Across the north, we'll see sunshine. It's across the south that has a risk of thunderstorms tomorrow. It will be very isolated pockets of downpours of rain, possibility of hail and thunderstorms. Tomorrow's daytime high, only 11 degrees, but we will warm up to sunny skies, warm up to 13 degrees with sunny skies on Friday, and it looks like we'll start off the weekend with that also. Tonight, center windows weather window coming to you from White Rock from Stacy showing some stormy skies off in the distance. This was from a couple of days ago. Thank you to Stacy for that one. And that's a little bit of what you can expect tomorrow. All right, guys, back to you. Stormy, but pretty. All right. Mm -hmm. Thanks very much, Christy. A new official photo has been released to mark Queen Elizabeth's 96th birthday on Thursday, and it pays a subtle tribute to her late husband. Take a look. The picture taken on the grounds of Windsor Castle shows the monarch standing between two of her fell ponies. The queen is wearing her trademark black shoes and a long dark green coat. A nod to Prince Philip. The color is the Duke of Edinburgh's official livery color, also known as Edinburgh Green. Very cool. Beautiful ponies, too. <laughs> uh, okay, do the Canucks have the horsepower? to make it to the playoffs. I see what you did there. That's very clever. <laughs> it's very clever. Yes, they still do. Well, they're still in the race. They only got a point last night against Ottawa, which was a bit of a surprise, but they aren't panicking. We were going to we were going to be allowed one mulligan uh, somewhere along the road. And I guess the loss to Ottawa was the mulligan, but as we said, they're not out of the race at all. There is still hope in Canuck Nation.
Good to hear it. Also later, escape from Ukraine, an emotional reunion in Canada and the key family member they had to leave behind. Richard Zussman was trash tweeting Canucks fans last night. Was he wearing a senator's uniform at the game? Yeah. (laughs) It's it's one of his only flaws. One of his. It's a big flaw. Like, it's glaring, but it is... He's lucky he got out of that without some sort of, you know, beer and or Coke (laughs) stain on that shirt. Okay, uh, last night, aside from Richard Zussman, was all frustration and consternation for the Canucks. Numerous scoring chances that went unfulfilled. They lost to Ottawa in a shootout where the winning goal is scored by former Canuck Adam Gaudet, who barely played during regulation time. But at least Vancouver got a point. The Kings and Predators won, so Vancouver lost a bit of ground to them, but they gained ground on Vegas and Dallas. Now, the Canucks go on the road Thursday in Minnesota, Saturday in Calgary. We were going we to be allowed one mulligan uh, somewhere along the road. We were thinking that it might be on the road trip at some point, but uh, uh, so now we just have to... Uh, go back when you know what we've responded really well in the in the past and that's uh, that's you know I mean this is a group that has fought for four and a half months almost five months now and they're not going to quit now Yaroslav Halak will not be on this road trip he got hurt during this scramble late in the first might have been something to his right hand or right arm all the Canucks are saying is an upper body injury but that means that's Spencer Martin, who we saw earlier in the year. He's going to be Thatcher Demko's backup until further notice. Martin was called up, of course, from Abbotsford. Well, in these times, late in the hockey season, when you're fighting for a playoff spot, you then develop frenemies. Normally, the Oilers are an enemy, but tonight they're a frenemy because they're playing the Dallas Stars, and this is a great rush by Connor McDavid, which ends up in a goal by Vancouver, born and raised Evander Kane. Uh, the Oilers were up. 2-0, but now it's 2-2. All right. We often marvel when an athlete puts in a long career in whatever sport they're in, but we often don't talk about the other athletes, and that's the referees and officials. They are running around, too. And if you're a lacrosse official, it means not only running around, you break up a lot of scuffles. And if you do it for 20-plus years and you keep on doing it, that's pretty impressive. Right, ready boys? Here we go. Todd LeBranch has been bringing the hustle and passion for the game of lacrosse for decades. LeBranch currently officiating his 21st National Lacrosse League season. Todd played the game as a youngster and blew the official's whistle for the first time at the age of 12. He's worn the zebra stripes and been policing the game ever since. Hey, Ryan! You know, my motto is just stay out of the way. Let the players decide not only the pace of the game, but where that line is going to be. Because the line's going to be different for every game. And so, you know, we just have to set where that line is going to be and make sure that we maintain it, uh, you know, um, every minute of every quarter. Todd made history on the weekend, becoming the only NLL official to call 400 games. Now, to you and I, that may not seem like a lot until you realize the professional lacrosse league regular season is a fraction the size of other pro sports like the NHL or NBA. If you do the math, you can kind of take 16 NLL games per season and uh, equate it to 80 NHL games per season. You kind of come out closer to 2,000. Wow. 
So that really puts it into perspective for you. It does. It really does. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to, to work that many uh, seasons has is, is been an honor to me. Even! Even! As we all know, the best officials are the ones that we really don't notice out there. But a couple seasons ago, Todd made a penalty call that went viral when he added a human touch to it. These two are clearly having issues with each other, could not restrain them to themselves, so we're going to give them two minutes to think about what they've done. <laughs> Todd LeBrand going off script. The, the call itself was just a uh, spur of the moment type thing. I, I thought, you know, I'm going to add some levity to the game. At the age of 57, Todd's still on the floor while the players that he used to officiate are behind the bench coaching. But he's not about to let go of the game. He's recalibrated his whistle and plans on being on the lacrosse floor for at least a few more years. I think I can push for 500, so maybe, uh, you know, four, maybe five more seasons and, and uh, look at uh, how things go year by year. That's Victoria born and raised Nick Pavetta. Well, Victoria raised for sure. Bo Bichette is going to uh, make his life a little bit miserable here. Five runs in the second for Toronto against Boston. Pavetta would last four innings. He's one of our guys. Let's show him doing something good. There you go. Striking out Vladimir Guerrero. But uh, Toronto is up 6-1 in the seventh inning. Well, Wimbledon has decided not to allow any Russian or Belarusian players at this year's tournament because of the invasion of Ukraine. They are the only Grand Slam event that's going to do this. Both the men's and women's tours are publicly disagreeing with this stance, saying it's not fair to the individual players and it discriminates. This means many top players won't be at Wimbledon, like men's number two and U.S. Open champ Daniel Medvedev, uh, Arena Sabalenka of Belarus, women's number four is out. If you combine the men's and women's side, there are 10 Russians or Belarusians in the top 30 of world rankings. There you go. Big loss uh, for Wimbledon, but they're taking a stand. Thanks, Squire. Just ahead, a Ukrainian family finds new friends and safety in Canada. Jordan Armstrong is here now with a look ahead to Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Sophie, tonight we'll hear from an Abbotsford dairy farmer who's having a real tough time with City Hall. Her home was destroyed in the flooding last year. Now she's been ordered to stop work on its replacement. We'll have the city's response at 11. Plus, students and staff at UBC will have to continue wearing masks on campus, not for a few more weeks, but a few more months. These stories and more tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie? All right. Thank you very much, Jordan. All right. We'll leave you tonight with an emotional family reunion in Calgary. A mother and her seven-year-old son finally arrived in Canada after their escape from Ukraine. Ramina Dea talked to the Vancouver woman whose tireless efforts in negotiating the bureaucracy made it all happen. A reunion, seven weeks in the making. Seven-year-old Timur Boretz, overwhelmed. The little boy and his mom, Lena, finally arrive in Canada after escaping the chaos of war in their homeland. We are happy to be here, finally, in Canada. See now a family. <laughs> Days after Russian bombs begin obliterating Ukraine, Timur and his mom embark on a harrowing journey from Dnipro to the Polish border. Timur saying goodbye to his dad, Taras staying behind to save his country. He says he's fine, but we are both we are suffering, you know, really. 
it's it's really hard to be apart. Michelle Petrusevich relieved to see her niece and nephew land safely in Calgary. Like, I wonder what it's like for a seven-year-old to kind of go through this process, right? He must have been just overwhelmed. Five million Ukrainians have fled. Canada now home to more than 15,000. Petrusevich, grateful her family made it out. But she worries for her countrymen, who are still trying to obtain the proper documents in the middle of a war zone. It's a human tragedy that's still um, unfolding. What's frustrating is when you get this, you know, when you get caught in red tape and, and, you know, if we can clear it up and make it easier, that would be great. The focus now to get Timur into school. Lena, an English professor, wants to start teaching again. Taras's future hinging on an end to the war. The only thing we are really dreaming about is peace. Romina Dea, Global News. Peace. That's what we need. Uh, and a little bit of sunshine would be good, too. Christy has last word on weather before we go. <laughs> well, Chris, we may have a little bit of sunshine tomorrow, but don't count on much at all. Mostly what we're going to see is these pockets of downpours of rain, a little bit of lightning possible, hail possible. So keep your eye on the sky tomorrow, that's for sure. The majority of the sunshine will move in on Friday, which is pretty nice. It's not too far away. It's a little bit of everything tomorrow, basically. <laughs> Be prepared. All right, thanks, Christy, and thank you very much for watching, everyone. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Have a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.